Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hi, I'm Jonathan Merch of the Itch Your Break Podcast, and you're listening to Scandal Water with Candy and Ashley. And this November, it's a cornucopia of topics. So, take it away, girls. Hey, Ashley. Hello, Candy. I think this one's going to be fun. It's a little different. Okay. So, since it's a little different, mm-hmm. I'm going to make our opener activity a little different. Ooh. Okay. Is it a quiz? It's not a quiz. Okay. It's a challenge. <laughs> okay. All right. Without moving your lips. Okay. You're going to make... Can you read it? I just kind of scribbled that down. Okay. Can, you, can you read it? You don't want me to move my lips, so you're saying to do it like this? Give me your best throwing your voice oh. attempt. Hmm. I don't know if I can. We're, <laughs> we're, <laughs> ver- it's the bee, the brewing. We're brewing up a steam called skittle water. <laughs> How did that look? I should have been recording that. <laughs> that would have been a great video clip. Not easy, is it? No, it's not. You did, it was a valiant attempt. <laughs> That's not even, that's not even a bronze medal. You want to take a guess what our topic is? Charlie McCarthy? It is. (gasps) Really? Yes. He first appeared in our episode, if you would like to hear more, (laughs) on War of the Worlds. He did. Because he was on the radio. And I was like, a ventriloquist on the radio? Dot, 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 question mark, (laughs) cocked eyebrow. (laughs) I love that you brought it up because I remembered that as well and specifically found a quote that talks about that. Awesome. So you've got something to look forward to. I do. Yeah. I thought this would be fascinating. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to give you like a little teaser. Okay. He came up on my radar to focus on as as a, a topic choice because of something his daughter Candace Bergen Bergen. actually revealed about him. So we're going to live in the Edgar Bergen history and why he's such a star, but I'm going to end with some little tidbits from Candace that I thought were fascinating. Candace, better known as Murphy Brown. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the thing about this is, I feel like probably a lot of our listeners will know very little about him. This may be surprising information, but I think you'll find it interesting because the very fact that a man, not that long ago could have built an empire around ventriloquism. Yeah. Like that's just... Well, think about it though. We got Jeff Dunham now. He's built a pretty big empire, hasn't he? Do you Who's know? that? You don't know who Jeff Dunham is? No. He's like the Charlie McCarthy of today. <laughs> oh. Well, what is he on? Uh, He's done a lot of comedy, central comedy specials, but he has Walter. You not Nothing? Nothing's... Nada. Nothing. Okay. Got nothing. Okay, guys, I'm going to show Candy some Jeff Dunham videos after this is over. (laughs) I feel feel bad now. No, don't feel bad. We can name two ventriloquists right now. Jeff Fafa. 
None of that sounds familiar? No. Okay. <laughs> you, you have a new person to meet. All right. Well, I see. I always learn things. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, let's talk about Edgar Bergen. He was born with the name Edgar Bergren, B-E-R-G-G-R-E-N, but he did later change that because he wanted a simpler stage name. Sure. So he was born February 16th, 1903 in Chicago, Illinois, to John and Nellie Swanson Bergen, who were Swedish immigrants. Mm. I don't know what they did for their entire lives, but for a time, his parents did make their living by operating a retail dairy business. And Edgar was the youngest of five children. He discovered ventriloquism at a very young age. Several sources said that he was 11 when he got hold of this manual called Herman's Wizard's Manual. Supposedly, he paid 25 cents for it. And this was a pamphlet that provided instruction on how to do ventriloquism. So using this, he basically taught himself, which is pretty cool to do as an 11-year-old. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, when he was 16 and attending Lakeview High School, his father died. Mm. So at this point, he had to go to work to try to help support the family. So he did a variety of things. He was everything from an apprentice accountant to a furnace stoker to a projectionist in a silent movie theater. Mm. So he was willing to do whatever he had to to help Mm. the family out. But some Somewhere around this time, he somehow crossed paths with a famous vaudeville ventriloquist named Harry Lester, better known as the Great Lester. Okay, so we have three ventriloquists. There you go. Now you know the Great Lester. (laughs) Yeah. This fella, Harry, was impressed by Edgar and the fact that he had taught himself ventriloquism. And so he took Edgar under his wing and he gave him free ventriloquism lessons several times a week for three months. Wow. How old is Edgar at this point? I don't know his exact age, but he's in high school. This probably really stoked Edgar and he decided he wanted to get his first ventriloquist dummy. So in the fall of 1919, oh, I know the answer to how old he was because he was still 16 when he got his first ventriloquist dummy. So I'm assuming these lessons with the Great Lester were probably around 15, 16, somewhere in there. But anyway, Edgar paid this man named Theodore Mack, who was a Chicago woodcarver, either $35 or $36, depending on the source. That was a lot back then. That was a lot. It was. Because it was so expensive and he was a kid who was working all these jobs just to help the family out, he couldn't ask Theodore Mack to do the whole thing because he couldn't afford it. Oh. So Theodore Mack did the head and what they called the internals and then Edgar himself had to make the body. I'm picturing like the, he just kind of like filled out the torso. I'm picturing that the head and like the, the basic structure okay. of the body was probably made by the Mack guy. But it was because it was too expensive. Yeah. yeah. So this character became Charlie McCarthy and this Charlie McCarthy was the star of Edgar Bergen's ventriloquist act forever. I mean this was the He never got another character. It was just him? No, he did add some okay. later, but okay. but Charlie was also the star, was always okay. the star. He was the central figure throughout. Okay. This ventriloquist dummy was supposed to be a teenager, a very well-dressed teenager. Mm-hmm. He was made of wood and plastic. He had human hair and glass eyes. He wore synthetic fabric and cotton clothing, and his top hat was cardboard and fur. He had a glass monocle and leather shoes. Now, a few different stories were told about who Edgar modeled this character after. Pretty much everybody seems to agree that it was an Irish newsboy, but some people said that Edgar knew the guy. Some people said he just saw this newsboy in a sketch, but most agree that he was modeled after this person. Sounds a little bit like Teddy Roosevelt meets the Monopoly man. Oh, that's a good, yeah. The motivation 
sounded like Edgar wanted to make his character unique. He wanted it to stand out. He wanted contrast or or I think a little bit of maybe I would call it the shock factor. Mm-hmm. So he purposely put him in all this like really fancy clothing so that when he would make these jokes that were inappropriate uh, and the fact that he was a teenager but yeah. he's dressed up, you know, in yeah. fancy dress clothing. I think he was going for contrast, going yeah. for like what would make him unique. Oh, nice word. Thank you. That was what Charlie was famous for. He would make these inappropriate jokes. He would say inappropriate things. He was a bit of a womanizer. He was always flirting, making comments. And the funny thing was, it was several different sources mentioned that Charlie could get away with saying things that the censors would not allow other actors or artists at that time to do. For some reason, it was, if it came from this dummy, dummy, this character, they let it go. That's so wild. Yeah. I don't remember what it was, but I remember one source gave an example of something that Mae West or W.C. Fields said that got cut uh-huh. and then they contrasted it to something that Charlie McCarthy said that got by. So anyway, Edgar's first public appearance with his ventriloquist act took place at the Waveland Avenue Congressional Church that was located across the street from where he lived mm-hmm. and that was actually the point when he did shorten his last name from Bergen to Bergen for the stage. Okay. And then every summer from 1922 to 1925, he was on the vaudeville circuit. And he would he would perform on the vaudeville circuit and especially a lot in Chicago's Lyceum Theater. And his popularity grew as he would go from different small towns and, and sometimes in the big cities. For a time during this period, he also attended some college classes at Northwestern University. It, it said he did not graduate. So I'm not sure how long he was there. But for the time that he was enrolled, he paid for his own college expenses by doing these gigs. Okay. And so magic, ventriloquism, these were his things. I'll pause for a second. Do you know any more about Charlie and Edgar that you want to like throw in here before I continue? I don't think so. No. Uh, I did think of a fourth ventriloquist though. The little girl Darcy that was on America's Got Talent. Do you remember her? I don't. I'm (laughs) compiling a list of ventriloquists in my head as you talk. (laughs) She's over there playing trivial pursuit. (laughs) I rolled the dice. I'm like, okay, come up with another one. No, I don't think I know more other than the connection to Murphy Brown or Candace. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. You used the word juxtaposition and I'm, I'm looking at the next part of my notes and I think that word really fits. I okay. think that's part of what made Edgar's act so appealing was he really wanted to juxtapose his persona against Charlie's because Edgar really tried to project this air of being this calm, intelligent, educated person playing against Charlie McCarthy, who really came across as this brash, you know, kind of um, impetuous, mm. saucy. One source described him as kind of coming across as having street urchin sauciness. But he's dressed well. But dressed well. Interesting. That is interesting. So the fact that that made it funnier because you had this really kind of dignified person up against somebody who was the the opposite. He also made him stand out, Edgar did, from other ventriloquists by placing both of them, as we said, in tuxedos. And they were effective. Their act received a lot of attention and praise pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah. Edgar gave Charlie most of the funny lines. Like oh, he, yeah. Like basically Edgar was the straight man. Yeah. Charlie was the funny one. Right. And another part of the gimmick or the gig was that a lot of the jokes would be made about Edgar. Like Charlie uh, would constantly mm-hmm. be poking fun, teasing, making fun of Edgar. For an example, here's a common joke. Edgar might say something like, I've taken a lot from you. And then Charlie McCarthy would come back with something like, yes, and you've kept every penny of it. <laughs> so that's a t- typical joke. So Edgar and Charlie 
actually appeared in theaters and nightclubs and their fame continued to grow. But their big break came in 1936 when Edgar and Charlie performed at a New York party managed by Elsa Maxwell for Noel Coward. Now, Noel Coward then recommended them to the famous Rainbow Room and it was while they were performing there that two producers saw the act. So they then recommended Edgar and Charlie appear as guests on Rudy Valley's radio program. And this is all within a very short time because he was on that radio show December 16th of 1936. So it happened all within the same year. That was huge for him. The next year on May 9th, 1937, Edgar started appearing on the regular cast of shows such as the Chase and Sanborn Hour. So he's on the radio. So we Mm -hmm. gotta, we gotta... We gotta address this. Do we, does it say they were live, right? It was mm-hmm. obviously live. Mm-hmm. So they're just recording and the audience at home is having to imagine. Yes. And in fact, you know what? Since you're bringing it up, how about I go ahead and skip ahead and play just a tiny clip just so you can hear just the beginning, the opening okay. of one of the radio shows just to hear Charlie's voice. Okay. Now, this is not them doing their little act, okay. but just to hear a little piece of how it might have sounded. This is Don Amici. This is greeting you for one of Hollywood's new stars. Yes, Charlie McCarthy. Yes. Uh, please, please, Charlie. The world-famous skater, Miss Sonia Henney. Yes. And for Ray Middleton. He's a singer, too. Yes, Charlie. A yes. singer whose baritone voice and dramatic talents make him one of the finest oh. young singers in America. This is Charlie McCarthy still. Charlie yes. McCarthy. Charlie McCarthy, all right, but never still. Oh, you will have your clip. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, too, from Dorothy Lamour. Oh, to your Lamour. W.C. Fields. Boo, boo, boo. Edgar Bergen. Boo. And Charlie McCarthy. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Tell you're a great help. I'm prejudiced. <laughs> so there was his voice, uh-huh. and people just loved they were their laughing. personalities. Yeah. That's really what it came down to. So as we said, Edgar started appearing on the Chase and Sanborn Hour, which mm-hmm. is what I think we were actually listening to a little piece of that. The program became a huge success because of, I think, what you just brought out. It was their personalities. Right. It wasn't the skill of right. watching a ventriloquist. It was their personalities. People loved they Charlie. They probably just thought of them as two different people and they were just watching a comedy act, mm-hmm. a comedy duo, and they just didn't even think about it being a dummy. Yeah, and, and listening to it. Like it was yeah. just, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. People gave Edgar a lot of praise for being not a ventriloquist, but I mean, I'm sure they gave him praise for that as well. But really, I think what he was known for was being this comedic actor mm-hmm. who could write wonderful jokes and come up with very funny comical situations and his wit his cleverness was really what I saw a lot of mention about in the sources and again Charlie was beloved by listeners people just adored him they thought he was hysterically funny the censors let him get away with stuff and he just stole the show that's crazy so in addition to having Charlie with him Throughout the different acts and on the Chase and Sanborn Hour, in 1938, he did introduce a second ventriloquist dummy named Mortimer Snurd. (laughs) (laughs) Is that where they get the word nerd from? I don't know. Snurd. Snurd. I I wonder (laughs) if it was a play on that. I don't know. know. Well, this character was supposed to be a friendly bumpkin with a slow drawl that one source compared to being kind of in the style of the Disney character Goofy. Oh, okay. 
again, juxtaposition. He was this great contrast to how sharp-witted and sharp-tongued Charlie was. And he was very innocent, where, of course, we had Charlie McCarthy being kind of the womanizer, you know, Mm -hmm. that. He had a very unique way of looking at the world with his logic. They also made Mortimer's appearance very different. He had buck teeth, a long nose. He wore very simple clothing, which, again, was very different from the formal wear worn by Charlie and Edgar. Within a very short time of Edgar being on the Chase and Sanborn Hour, they were beating out competitors like the Jack Benny program, the Eddie Cantor show. And for more than two years at one point, Edgar Bergen was recognized by the popularity polls as being the number one radio performer. Wow. Yeah. That's a big, big deal. Yeah, he was big. Bing Crosby's around there somewhere, right? Floating around. Oh, I, I don't look him up, but okay. I'm sure he was. He's probably like, I'm number one. <laughs> so about the lips. Okay, you've brought it up again. Here's that quote that I found. Even in the sources, it talked about the fact that critics would bring it up. People would bring it up. He's a ventriloquist on a radio. Like, what about that? But here's what they said. They said that actually, because of his radio work, he lost some of his skill as a ventriloquist. His ability to throw his voice and to talk without moving his lips was much stronger before he started all of his radio work. Well, yeah. But here's what they said. On the Ventriloquist Hall of Fame site, it gave this quote. As a ventriloquist, Edgar was accused of moving his lips. Bergen didn't deny this fact and even joked about it with Charlie. His skills in earlier clips were evident. But as Bergen said, I played on radio for so many years, it was ridiculous ridiculous to sacrifice diction for 13 million people when there was only 300 watching in the audience. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So apparently, this affirms to me what we keep saying. He went for form over style or style over form? No, he he chose form because he was going diction. And he went for the sharpness of the comedy. Yeah, he yeah. Knew, he knew it was about their rapport, their jokes, yeah. their precision. Yeah. Moving his lips helped with that. Yeah. Again, just to kind of bring another example of the kind of thing you might hear, here's another little joke. And, and by the way, this is one I pulled from later in their life, but I thought it was kind of nice to share it here. So Charlie might say something like, I hope you won't embarrass me like you did in Las Vegas and Edgar would say what about Las Vegas I thought I gave a very moving performance and Charlie might come back with something like oh yes it was moving all right especially your lips (laughs) so like he would tease him all the time about that ultimately Edgar would end up spending nearly 20 years on the Chase and Sanborn hour and he earned top billing most of that time in fact at one point it was even renamed the new Edgar Bergen hour near the end Mm -hmm. yeah to give one more example to illustrate the popularity of Edgar's show you brought it up. What? The War of the Worlds. Oh, yes. Yes. We talked about this in our episode. Again, there was supposed to have been that panic and, and the rumors were that it was just absolutely very widespread nationwide panic. It was it was a big deal. But what it said in this source was, in 1938, the Chase and Sanborn show dominated Sunday Night Radio. Orson Welles program, the Mercury Theater series, aired in the same time slot, but was viewed by most listeners as boring and pompous. Mm. On October 30, 
The War of the Worlds was broadcast. Many newspapers later reported that it fooled the country and caused a panic. But according to radio polls that night, only about 2% of listeners even tuned into Mercury Theater broadcast. The rest were listening to Bergen and Charlie cracking jokes. Hmm. One critic even wrote a telegram to Wells that read, This only goes to prove, my beamish boy, that the intelligent people were all listening to the dummy and that all the dummies <laughs> were listening to you. Oh, <laughs> Burn. I thought we would enjoy that. Since we did. It, yeah. Hark yeah. So Bergen was big. He worked with many radio stars of that time, including Frank Sinatra, Henry Fronda, Roy Rogers, Groucho Marx, Liberace. He was personal friends with fellow radio star Robert Ripley. I mean, this he was big. And of course, for humor, playing for laughs, Charlie, on the other hand, had made many enemies, mm-hmm. including a long-standing feud with W.C. Fields, which mm-hmm. of course everybody adored. So before we we go on do you think we should stop here and take a break yes you have to watch a jeff dunham video so I, we're doing yeah, that yes i do <laughs> all right we are back and during the break ashley educated me she showed me some clips of jeff dunham is that jeff correct dunham and darcy i don't remember her last name already but she's amazing oh too. my goodness she was singing she was singing she was on apparently it was the ellen show and uh-huh. she was singing both parts of a song her voice was beautiful to begin with but then t- to go so high while she was i know we'll have to share her- clips oh yeah it was impressive awesome well so it's nice to know that this is not an outdated thing this no. is actually still very relevant today yeah, very relevant i wonder what i have whatever happened to the great Lester. So he, he trains this guy and he's like, okay, I'm going to go be famous. Bye. Oh, I, maybe he sent him little nice Christmas gifts every I year. I hope so. Yeah, something. Edgar Bergen was not just on the radio, which obviously he was supremely successful with that. We've already talked about that. But he also was making movies. Mm. He made 14 major motion pictures plus a number of, of short little films over the course of a, several decades. And some of his earliest films would include The Goldwyn Follies in 1938 and the movie with W.C. Fields, You Can't Cheat an Honest Man, which was <laughs> was released in 1939 and in fact Charlie actually received a special Academy Award in 1938 with his own little wooden Oscar statuette. That's cute. I know right? So he also tried his hand at another form of entertainment. Edgar Bergen created a syndicated comic strip Mortimer and Charlie. Which oh, I've was, heard of that. That's them. Mortimer, oh. Snurd, and Charlie McCarthy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. It ran in newspapers from July 1939 to May 1940, and they had artist Ben Batsford with illustrating the strip, followed by another artist. But the important part is he just kept extending his reach yeah. into yeah. all these different forms of the arts. Now, during World War II, they took their tour over to entertain some of the military fellas. Uh-huh. They toured military hospitals in the U.S. They made numerous appearances overseas touring with the USO and they broadcast from the army navy and marine bases during and after the war so that was nice that is nice and it was around this time 1941 that Edgar met the woman who would become his wife Mm. Frances Westerman now she was a graduate of Los Angeles high school and she was only 19 years old when she attended Edgar Bergen's popular radio show as a guest of a staff member okay now this is the confusing part and I actually looked 
in so many different sources. I think they must have all been like following one AP source and therefore they all had the same problem. Right. But they kept saying that they met in 1941 and a year later they were married, but they were actually married in 1945. So I don't know oh. if they actually met in 1944 or if they actually dated for four years. Okay. But they okay. kept mismatching. Okay. The story is that she was in this show and he saw her long, pretty legs in the front row and asked to meet her. Ooh. And the this led eventually to their marriage. She was 20 years younger. She was Oh, a... I didn't realize he was that much older mm-hmm. at this point. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they were married in 1945. By then, she was a successful model in New York City, and she was seen in magazines and on billboards. She was known as the Chesterfield Girl and oh. the Ipana Girl. Because those were two of the products that she advertised. And in the 1950s, I mean, this girl, this lady could have been, I think, a big film star had she wanted. She was in several films, including Titanic. She had guest roles on television shows like The Four Star Playhouse, Fireside Theater, and The Dick Powell Show. But one source commented that they think she stepped back from acting a little bit in order to focus on her family because she did, they did have two kids together. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like Edgar actually encouraged her to do that, that he really wanted wanted her to be more around the family. Ah. They had the two children, Candace Bergen, who was born on May 9th, 1946. And then there was a big gap. The younger brother, Chris Bergen, was not born until October 12th, 1961. Oh, that is a big gap. It is a big gap. To give you an idea of just how famous Edgar was. A Washington Post article about Candace Bergen's 2015 memoir, A Fine Romance, Uh had this quote about her childhood. A child of Hollywood, she attended Elizabeth Taylor's Easter egg hunts. She knows everyone you might dream of knowing. The tufted leather sofa in this apartment came from Roger Moore's Los Angeles home. The Christmas cactus was a baby gift from Gianni Versace. Wow. Yeah, so that's how she grew up. That's how big Edgar was. That's who's in her inner circle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the same article, there was a quote from Candace herself where she just kind of mentions in passing that her dad had dated Ava Gardner at one point. Wow. So so this guy was, he was huge. He was huge. Yeah, between 1947 and 1954, Charlie was again the star of a comic strip that Edgar scripted and was also created by Harvey Eisenberg. And then in October of 1949, Bergen went to CBS with a new weekly program, The Charlie McCarthy Show. Just straight up Charlie McCarthy Show. Yep, he now is the star. Various sponsors supported the show through the end of their 1953 to 54 season. And in October of 1954, Kraft Foods sponsored a new Edgar Bergen Hour. Their participation, Kraft's participation ended, but the series continued with different sponsors and now it was a 55 minute program. And then this was around the time that they made the transition to television because TV was getting to be really big Mm -hmm. and therefore radio was kind of on the decline. Right. That series ended July 1st, 1956 and Edgar and Charlie transitioned to TV with an NBC show, Do You Trust Your Wife, that ran from 1958 to 1959 and it said, Edgar remained so busy and so relevant for the next 20 years. He continued to perform in nightclub acts. He made TV appearances, including The Muppet Show. Ah! Yeah. In fact, because of his Muppet Show appearance, he was cast in The Muppet Movie, which actually ended up being his last appearance on screen. Mm. It was released after he passed away, actually, Mm. and Jim Henson dedicated the film to him. Edgar died in 1978. He was 75 years old. 
He died in his sleep in Las Vegas, and his body was found at 4 p.m. His Las Vegas show had just opened a few days before that at Caesars Palace. So here he was, 75. He's still doing these Las Vegas gigs. Yep. It was a two-week engagement that was supposed to be part of his farewell to show business tour. And a spokesman for Caesars Palace had this quote, He was doing great. Standing ovations at every show. That's amazing. Yeah. And after his death, Charlie McCarthy was sent to the Smithsonian in Washington. Now, we've talked about his life and his legacy, but if we're going to talk just straight up money, it sounded like Edgar was estimated to be worth around $2 million. And this is... I would not sneeze at that amount. this is back in 1978, so that would probably be significantly more. Now, here's some of the little tidbits that I found really interesting. Okay. The whole reason this came across my radar was because, again, I saw some quotes from Candace Bergen. Mm-hmm. As Ashley's already said, Candace Bergen is probably best known to people our age right, as right. Murphy Brown. But she has done a lot of other things in her life, including modeling and some different things. But she was Edgar's daughter, obviously. So she shared, she has written two memoirs. One of them was a 1984 memoir called Knock Wood, where she supposedly talked quite a bit about growing up. Yeah, that the, would make sense. The daughter of Edgar Bergen. Yeah. And then in 2015, I've already mentioned it. It was a follow-up book, a memoir that continued the story of her life called A Fine Romance. Some of the things that she mentioned, what I have not read either of those books, and I'm sure there's tons of information in there that I am not not covering and not aware of. So again, if anybody wants to jump in and share things, please do. But based on the little pieces that I would either see referenced in articles or there were a series of video clips that apparently were taken from this longer interview that that Candace had done with Harry Smith and also I think it was Jane Polly. I've seen several of those. Okay. So pulling just from these limited resources that I was able to get hold of, here are a few things that I found interesting. For one thing, Candace talked about the fact that she felt as famous as her dad was. She felt Charlie rated above him. Wow. Yeah. She said that Charlie McCarthy was bigger than her dad. And even more interesting than that, she made comments to the effect that to her father, Charlie was not a puppet. He was like a person. She like a co-star? Yes. That, okay. that she felt that he was such a presence in her dad's life that it wasn't just like his little gimmick or his little side thing. Like she said her dad treated Charlie like a person. Wow. Yeah. Here, here's here's a quote. In a in a sweet endearing way or a creepy way? Well, I think I think she thought it was okay, but there were parts of it that bothered her. We'll talk okay. about that. Okay. She said Charlie McCarthy was not a puppet to my father. This was again in that interview that she gave for CBS Sunday morning. He was an alter ego and he was also a separate entity. Charlie had his own room in the Bergen household. Oh. And she mentioned that his room was bigger than hers. What? Mm-hmm. Mm. Her father also also had a desk for Charlie in his office. She talks about that. It was this low desk that was like scaled to proportion for Charlie. Okay. Yeah. She talked about the fact that it was almost like, I don't know, it really it really did seem like she felt that Charlie was almost a more important sibling child mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. you know than than her. She talked about the fact that she was called Charlie's younger sister. She shared, this was just a little side note that I thought was kind of interesting, that she shared that it was kind of creepy because there was a place where there was, in his, I guess it was in Charlie's room, he had like five different heads and he would have different, they had different hairstyles, different looks, like there was angry Charlie, sleepy Charlie, different bodies wearing different clothes. And she talked about how creepy it would be to go in as a child and see all these heads hanging there. Yeah. And she talked about the fact that the dummy, Charlie, dominated her childhood. She felt that 
her father's sense of kinship with Charlie was much stronger than her own relationship with her dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She shared a couple of different instances or examples that I thought were interesting. One was she recalled sitting down to breakfast on one of her dad's knees and Charlie would be placed on the other. I didn't sound like this was every day, but it sounded like it happened maybe more than once. Which would be too much. Right. (laughs) And quote, a gentle squeeze on the back of my neck was my cue to open and shut my mouth so he could ventriloquize me. Charlie and I would chatter together silently while behind us, dad would supply the snappy repartee for both of us. Wow. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. So that, those were some of the things that she talked about that were kind of disturbing. I saw a few shout outs too. She mentioned that Charlie had positively affected her life because when she was playing her award-winning role of Murphy Brown, she said she had to channel her inner Charlie, mm. that he gave her permission to be her, quote, brattiest, bodiest self. Yeah, so she kind of channeled him. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. And she said that her father was also kind of channeling Charlie. Like she said that really he was kind of a buttoned down, quiet, introverted person Mm -hmm. unless he was with friends or he had Charlie with him. And when he did, it was almost like it was his invitation to. to, It was his alter ego. That it, yeah, right? Yeah, like Superman and Clark Kent. He'd be more open to like tell a dirty joke or something. Yeah. Now, after he died, they found out that Edgar had kept at least one secret from his wife. He had never shown her the contents of a safe in his study. When Candace and her mom finally figured out the combination after his death, which was the name Charlie transposed into numbers. Okay. Right? The door opened to reveal these fabulous pieces of jewelry that Edgar had purchased and stowed away as investments. And they said also to avoid paying taxes on them. Uh oh. But the point is, you could see where Charlie was, uh, what's the word, prevalent in his mind in so many ways. Like, the So fa- how did the jewelry make him prevalent? What was that? What is it? Well, I mean, just uh, to me, it was the fact that he, Charlie is his... The code. The code. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. It was just And he was being a little um, bad in that if he was getting the jewelry to avoid paying taxes. Yeah. We're almost here at the end, actually. Just a few more examples. Okay. Despite being able to support herself financially because Candace Bergen has done perfectly well with her own career one thing that really devastated her was that when her dad died he left her nothing in his will but he left ten thousand dollars to charlie mccarthy what Mm-hmm. In leaving the money to well, Charlie. Well, didn't she have a brother at that time, too? I didn't look up to see if Chris was left anything. Okay. I did, again, guys, remember she's got memoirs written, and I'm sure that on my surface level knowledge here, I'm, I'm missing a lot of things. But I read one place in a source where she was speculating that she was a bit of a wild child and didn't always follow mm-hmm. her parents' path, and sometimes she said mm-hmm. things that might have been embarrassing to them. And so she wondered if when he had changed the you will. You mean she was acting like Charlie? <laughs> Maybe. (laughs) But that she wondered if maybe at the time he changed the will, it was because of, like, in response to how she had acted out. But you don't leave $10,000 to the wooden dummy. Well, you make a great point. But now, to be fair, let's see if this sheds any light. Here's what he said about that bequeathment. I make this provision for sentimental reasons, which to me are vital due to the association with Charlie McCarthy, who has been my constant companion and who has taken on the character of a real person 
and from whom I have never been separated even for a day. And Candace said it was that last part that she'd never get over. But supposedly the provision was the funds were to be managed, invested, and reinvested to fund ventriloquist performances in the future. So I think what he was doing was not so much leaving it to the doll as setting this money aside so that ventriloquism would continue. That sounds fine. That's not what he said. What he said was, this is for Charlie because he's been my BFF (laughs) forever. Yeah, yeah. That's rough. Well, and she had said that that hurts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, Candace. Just to finish that out, here's her quote. I chased my father's approval all my life and here was proof I'd never get it. Mm. Now, on the flip side. Okay. From my limited knowledge, I also saw different places where she talked about the fact that she did some great things with her dad. She said they would go up in his plane together and that sometimes, you know, he would even prop her up and let her fly the plane, you know, on phone books, you know, that pretend flying thing. Mm-hmm. They would go fish together. They would sometimes take long breakfast rides on horseback when they would visit Palm Springs. So it's not like he didn't do things with his sure. daughter. And she literally said, quote, I knew my father loved me, but with his Swedish reserve, it was in his nature to tell me. So she recognized that she was loved, but it sounded like it hurt that he just didn't show it more. She talked about the fact he was not physically affectionate, and she said she'd never heard her father or mother say, I love you. Wow. Yeah. It also sounds like she said, yes, he spent time with me, but he spent more time with Mm -hmm. Charlie. She, I think she saw the love being bestowed on the doll, a doll, a dummy, more so than she felt it for herself. We're making inferences. She shared one more example with that. She said that as a young girl when she tried to get over her own terror of trying to tell her dad she loved him, she did it and his response to her was to pat her on the hand. Oh. Yeah. A comment she made was, again, she I think she did feel loved by her dad. It wasn't like she was bitter, but at the same time, I thought it was a little heartbreaking that in one of these interviews, she said, as a grandmother now, with her own grandson, Artie, she says, I tell Artie I love him all the time. Mm. I just love you, Artie. He has no idea what I'm saying, but he has to understand the sound of those words because they're so powerful. Oh, Candace. Yeah. Yeah. Armchair psychologist. This is it. We've definitely, I think, covered Edgar as an innovator. Yeah. As a man who had initiative, sharp, witty, funny, able to to take his skills and make the most of them. Yeah. And then both sides of him. You know, Mm -hmm. I guess the the toll it takes sometimes on your personal life and how you are maybe as a parent or as a family member when you are so enmeshed in... You're so busy building the empire that you're not curating what's at home. And again, this is from what we can tell from what we've seen. Yeah. So I'm intrigued now. Okay. Because a few minutes ago you said, so Charlie was his alter ego. Right. What are your thoughts about this? I I think that's what he did. I think he, if he was reserved, if he never said, I love you, if he was this buttoned up guy, he was literally letting it all out through Charlie. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe it was a form of narcissism in that he was in love with him, the other version of himself. And that's what Candace was picking up on. I don't know. It's fascinating. 
thinking, I would need to think a lot about mm-hmm. a lot about this. It's darker than I thought it was going to be mm-hmm. toward the end. I mean, right. at the beginning, we have his life. He's pulling himself up by his bootstraps. Did he get enticed by the shiny Hollywood? And he was on the radio and he had all these famous friends and dated Ava Gardner and just dipped his toes in Hollywood. And he fell in love with this lifestyle and he got this lifestyle through this doll. So this doll is his gateway to all this great stuff, which is why he's always going to love this doll. Mm -hmm. But his daughter didn't do anything for him. Mm -hmm. Is that what it's, is that what we're saying? I don't know. All we have to go by is what Candace has said, which she said she felt loved. She just did not feel mm, like maybe she was, that he was proud of her. Like she rated as high as as the doll. As the doll. But the doll was just an extension of himself. Which is interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, I definitely see what you're saying. I could certainly make that inference that this is the side of him that he gets to reveal or he gets to let loose that freedom Mm -hmm. to kind of expose that button downside, to use her words, through Charlie. On the flip side... To go not quite so dark, but still sad. Here's this this boy who had to work yeah. all these different oh, yeah. jobs to help yeah. support his family. Probably a lot of poverty he was dealing yeah. with. And this dummy became his... Meal ticket. Meal ticket. Literal meal ticket. So like in some ways, was it all about like, here's everything to me because this has been my fame. This has been my fortune. Yeah. This is this is everything. This is how I provide for my family. And therefore, he's almost idolizing it in the maybe. way that some people would really go crazy over their boat or their cars yeah, or their... Whatever. Whatever, mm-hmm. you know? That makes sense, too. Yeah. Any way you look at it, it's just a little sad for the daughter who feels like she doesn't yeah. rate as high as a dummy. She's but his she, legacy and, more than Charlie. And she's turned out very well. That yes. was the other thing that was really nice. I'm watching her do these interviews, and I'm like, she seems very happy and funny and well-rounded. So she's certainly done fine for herself, no matter what oddities might have <laughs> been in her childhood. So Definitely. You, you go, Candace. That's right. Yes. So you know what? Mm. Let's do this. Let's end with a cheers to Edgar and Candace. The true father-daughter, the, father-child combination there you here. Go. Absolutely. <laughs> cheers to them. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can Join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.